So we're carrying on today our series that we've been doing where we've been looking at the words in red. So the sermons of uh, Jesus. And over the last number of weeks, probably since the end of, uh, end of the summer, we've been in this sort of lengthy section of John's Gospel, John 13, 14, and 15. And specifically over the last week or two, we've been entering into something called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is specifically preparing his disciples for what's going to come, specifically that he's going to go to the cross to be crucified for the sin of the world. But he's also been preparing them for what's going to happen afterwards when he rises again from the dead, when he ascends into heaven, and when he sends his Holy Spirit. So last week, John was talking about the reality of abiding in Jesus and that that's really the only way that a Christian can be fruitful in their life. But this week, Jesus in this section of Scripture is changing the subject And he's changing it to the subject of the persecution and hatred of Christians in the world. Now when I say persecution, what I mean by that is the activity of mainly unbelievers in their pursuit of Christians in hatred. And many of you in here will be maybe thinking, well, why do we have to have a message about persecution? And in in some ways, you would be responding to what I'm saying correctly because the truth is, is we don't get persecuted. We certainly are not persecuted the way that the early Christians were in the first few centuries. And we're certainly not persecuted the way other believers are around the world. And the reason why that is, is because three or four hundred years ago, in our country, in England, in the UK, the Lord was very gracious He poured his spirit out onto this country and many godly men and women rose up and they had a major effect upon the society, upon our law, upon our courts, upon parliament. And so we've been kind of been riding this wave of grace over the last three or four hundred years where people have respected Jesus, people have respected Christianity. But we have to realise, brothers and sisters, that is that that is changing rapidly. The UK no longer respects Jesus. The UK no longer holds to Christianity. We've forgotten the Bible. We've forgotten what God has said before. And the thing that's sobering about that is in Psalm 9, verse 17, it says that the wicked will be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Do you hear what I'm saying? That God says that if a nation forgets him, it will be turned into hell. That's a sobering thought. But I bring it up because that means that believers in Jesus Christ in the UK are going to experience more and more and more persecution. So we dare not not listen to what Jesus is saying in this text. It has much relevance for us today. So he starts off, if you look at verse 18, and he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So when Jesus uses that word hate or hates, he's talking about an emotion between one person and another of extreme dislike an aversion, uh, an emotion that's passionately against the other person. And Jesus is saying, look, if you experience that from the world, you've already seen, and I'm telling you again, that I have experienced that before you have. So why would Jesus start off this section with that statement? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first is is that Jesus knew very well that persecution was going to be an experience that all believers would have in their life. We see this confirmed to us in 2 Timothy 3.12. 
where it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution is a non-negotiable reality that all of us, to some degree or another, will experience in our life. And Jesus is alluding to that where he says, if the world hates you. And he uses the word if there, not in the sense that it might or might not happen. It's in the sense, when this happens, you need to listen to what I'm saying to you in the next few moments. The second reason he makes this statement is because Jesus not only knew that persecution was going to be a reality for believers, but that sometimes it would be so intense, so difficult, so bad, that it would only be by the power of God that Christians would survive that persecution. We see that in Paul's life, don't we? In 2 Corinthians 1, where he says that him and his ministry team were persecuted so badly in Asia that they had the sentence of death upon them. But God allowed it so that they could learn that it's only by God's power that they could survive. And again, Jesus alludes to that reality when he says, you know that it hated me before it hated you, because he's getting these disciples to see that they're going to have to look to him to get through their persecution. Now, with these two things in mind, what Jesus is wanting to do in this verse is he's wanting to lay a foundation for these, these disciples. He's essentially saying to them, look, I know you guys are going to be persecuted. I know that it's going to be very difficult for you. But when you experience that, I want you to then look to me, look to how I was persecuted with the purpose of seeing how I got through it. Jesus is going to say in John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. How did Jesus overcome the world? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying to these disciples here is, look, when you're persecuted, look to me, look to how I was persecuted, and see that I got through by the Holy Spirit. And I lay the foundation for you that you have that same spirit in you so you can get through your persecution. Amen. Now, I love this because what this shows us right from the outset in this text is Jesus' heart for his people when they suffer persecution. And it's a heart that wants to help his people, to strengthen his people, to encourage his people, to give his people the capacity to deal with it. It's probably a bit like how I felt a few weeks ago when we had to move our boys from the school that they were going to. They were going to a school outside of Norwich and uh, it took about 20 minutes, half an hour to drive there and back each way. And with two babies in the car, trust me, that's very difficult. <laughs> And so we knew we had to move them, and we decided to move them to a local school, which was only five minutes' walk away. Yes. But I knew that for them, that was going to be very difficult. It was going to be very difficult emotionally, physically, and all I wanted to do was absorb that for them as their father. I didn't want them to go through it, but I knew that they had to go through it. So what did I do? I tried to prepare them as best as I could, tried to give them the help that they needed, and by God's grace, they're getting used to their new school. Hallelujah. And this is what Jesus is like. Jesus knows we are going to go through persecution. I think he would want to absorb it himself, but he knows that we have to go through it, so therefore Jesus wants to help his people to be prepared for it. And that's really the main central theme of this message, Jesus helping his people through persecution. And he has three aims that he wants to achieve. We've already seen the first aim in verse 18, where he wants to lay this foundation of being able to get through it by the power of the Spirit. But there are two more aims. The second aim is in verse 1 of John 16. Look at that verse. We'll read it again. It says, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. So the second aim that Jesus has 
is that his people don't get stumbled by persecution, which means that when we're persecuted, we don't allow that persecution to push us away from Jesus, but to push us towards Jesus. That's the second aim. The third aim is in verse 4 of chapter 16. Let's read that. It says, But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I do not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So the third aim is that Jesus doesn't want us to be without knowledge. He wants us to know every detail about persecution, so that when it comes, we're not surprised. So the three aims are laying a foundation, making sure believers don't stumble, and making sure we don't have a lack of knowledge. So remember that as we go through this text. So the first section that I want to talk about is in verses 19 and 20. I'm just going to read verse 19 again. It says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what Jesus is going to begin to do here in this section, in verses 19 and 20, is he's going to explain why something happens. And generally he's going to explain why Christians are persecuted by the world. Now let's consider this, because don't you find it amazing that when somebody explains something to you about why something's happening, you instantaneously feel better about it. I'm sure all of us have been in a place in our Christian walk where we've been confused, where we don't know what's going to happen, where we don't know what's going to happen in our life as a believer. What church should we go to? Who should I fellowship with? Etc., etc. And the Lord in his grace just speaks to us through the scriptures, doesn't he? Or he brings a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge. And you, you're like, ah, oh, Lord, thank you for explaining to me why this situation is happening. I mean, I see it all the time in my work as a GP. I get loads of patients coming in with loads and loads of problems, and they're really burdened by it. And we, over a few weeks, go through them, we make a diagnosis, and you can see when you make the diagnosis and you explain why something's happening, the burden just lifts off of them, and they feel so much better. And this is Jesus' intention in this first section. He wants to give us an explanation about why we are persecuted. So in verse 19, what he's doing is he's talking about different kingdoms. And he's explaining how these different kingdoms interact with each other. He says, firstly, if you are of the world. And what he's speaking about there when he says world is he's talking about the world system the world system that's anti-God, anti-Jesus, the system that's completely against everything that God is for. So who is in this kingdom? Well, the Bible's very clear. It says that if you don't know God, if you are a sinner, if you are one that's been born in Adam, which everyone is, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. And the scriptures would say that for someone who is in that state, they are of this world system. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2. It says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that those who are not saved, those who are and who don't know the Lord are of the world system, they're of the world order, and also they are of the devil. Unbelievers, listen, brothers and sisters, are in the kingdom of the world, under the king of that world, the devil. And look at what it says. It says that if you're in that place, the world loves its own. And the word for love there means affectionate. If you don't know the Lord, if you haven't submitted to him, then the world loves you. The world sees you as one of its own. But then it says, but I chose you out of the world. Sorry, it says, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. So who are these people who are not of the world? Well, they are people who have been saved. 
when the Lord grabs hold of your life, when the Spirit begins to convict you of sin, when he draws you to Jesus, when repentance comes and faith comes and the new birth comes, you, listen, are transferred from this world system into the kingdom of Jesus. Listen to what it says in Colossians 1.13. It says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Hallelujah. If you're in this place this morning and you believe in Jesus and you're born again, you need to know that you are in the world but not of it. You've been taken out of that world system. You are now in the kingdom of Jesus. A kingdom of light, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of glory. And if you're in that place of being saved this morning, Jesus would also say to you that you were chosen for that very salvation. You were chosen before the foundation of the world, both for salvation and to be conformed to his image. We see that because he says, doesn't he, but I chose you out of the world. And he speaks there specifically of the disciples being chosen to be apostles, but he's also speaking of the fact that those who come out of the world were elected for that very purpose. But then notice he says that if you are in the kingdom of Jesus, it says, therefore the world hates you. There's a big difference there, isn't there? If you're in the world, the world loves you. But if you're in Jesus' kingdom, the world hates you. Why is that? Why does the world hate Christians? Well, I would say very simply, the reason is is because people love to hate each other. It's a very simple truth, but it's, it's, it's a real truth. The Bible teaches very clearly that the wages of sin is death. When we sin, we cause our own death and we cause other people's death. But more specifically, for those who are in the world, the other reason why it's very easy for them to hate is because they are following their king. Listen to what it says in John 8:44 about the devil. It says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Listen, he was a murderer from the beginning. So it's not illogical to think that those who are part of the devil's kingdom, the world, will be murderers. Now, I'm not saying that people go around killing each other physically, but how easy is it for us to kill people in our hearts, to hate people? And Jesus said, if you hate someone, that's the same as murder. So people in this world, in this world system, they find it very easy to hate each other. I saw this very vividly recently when I watched a program about the partition of India. And I don't know if you saw that, it was on the BBC. And in the 1940s, the British, the British are to blame for everything, aren't they? Um, but uh, I, I say that with a very serious sense as well. But Britain left India and they made these two countries, India and Western East Pakistan. And people started moving across the borders. But because people hated each other, because of the different religions that they had, there were terrible, terrible, terrible massacres. Terrible things happened. But it just shows that human beings find it easy to hate other human beings. And that's often because of differences, isn't it? Whether it's skin color, religion, nation, culture, football team, when there's a difference, we find it easy to not like someone. I mean, we have to also be honest in the church as well, don't we? Even though we're saved, even though we're born again, we find it easy when someone's different to us to not like them. Whether it's a different view on the rapture, a different view on the spirit, a different view on um, Calvinism or Arminianism, our barriers go up, don't they? We think, oh man, this person is really different from me. And we find it hard. But this is what human beings do. We find it easy to hate each other. And if that's the case in the world, how much more is it going to be for the world to hate Christians? Because listen, when you're saved, 
The Spirit starts working in your life, changing you, making you more like Jesus. Jesus becomes more evident from your heart. And the world's going to see that, and they're going to go, man, that person's different to me. They believe in this Jesus. I don't like that. I hate them for that. And this is the sole reason, the first reason, I'd say, why the world generally hates Christians. It's because we're not part of their kingdom anymore. We're part of a different kingdom that's different to them. And because human beings find it easy to hate each other, they hate us. That's the first reason. The second reason why the world generally hates us is in verse 20. It says there, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So here Jesus brings this saying up, a servant is not greater than his master. And what he's doing there is he's getting his disciples to remember something that he said to them earlier on when he was doing his ministry in Matthew 10. And in Matthew 10, if you remember, Jesus sends out the disciples to go and um, preach the kingdom of God. He says to them, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. And then he tells them that they're going to be persecuted, that they're going to be taken to uh, authorities, they're going to be brought before kings, that uh, family members are going to kill each other, etc., etc. And then he says this, in Matthew 10, 24 and 25. He says, The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And what Jesus was saying to his disciples was, was, is that he, he is the teacher. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the master. We are the disciple. We are the servant. And although in the scriptures we see that Jesus says that we're his brothers, that he's our friend, that he's our loving saviour, there's also this reality that Jesus is so much higher than us. We are inferior to Jesus. We're not on the same level playing field as the Lord. There is a difference there. And he's saying to them in these verses, look, because there's that difference there, because I'm higher than you, you should accept the fact that your experience as my disciple, as my servant, is never going to go above my experience. It's always going to be at least just slightly below my experience. And what Jesus is teaching here is very plain. He's saying that his, well, our standing in him guarantees our persecution because we are inferior to him in standing. His experience of life, as we read in the Gospels, is a measure of what our experience is going to be like as disciples. We should never think, listen, brothers and sisters, that we're going to somehow outlive Jesus' life. That somehow we're going to get to a point where we're never going to be persecuted or have difficult times. We have to be realistic about this. Because of our standing in Christ that guarantees that we're going to suffer. It guarantees that we're going to have persecution because he had exactly the same thing. Now, many Western Christians, 21st century Christians, find it very difficult to interact with this truth. Maybe some of you in here today are getting very annoyed about what I'm saying at this moment. Many Christians today find it very easy to distance themselves from the experience of Christ when he was alive, particularly the negative parts. But what does it say in the Word? It says that when Jesus came to the world, the world didn't accept him. The Scriptures say that Jesus was persecuted severely. The Scriptures say that Jesus was brutally crucified on a cross. But when you say that to a believer nowadays and say, well, you know, this is going to be our experience as well, they say, whoa, 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 hold on. No way. I'm giving people good news. I'm telling them about a God that loves them. They shouldn't hate me. They shouldn't do bad things to me. But is that really realistic, brothers and sisters? 
Can we really have that mentality about persecution, about preaching the gospel? Well, listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. It says there, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. When we preach the gospel both in our lives and with our mouths, we can expect God to do things. God will work in people's lives. He will save people. But listen, for a lot of people, when we tell them that they need to be saved, that Jesus loves them, do you know what they're going to think? They're going to think it's foolish. They're not going to want to hear it. And so I think we have to be realistic about this. Yes, in the future, we are going to have a glorious future. In the future, we can't even imagine how good it's going to be when Jesus returns. That's our inheritance in the future. But if that's our inheritance in the future, part of our inheritance now in Jesus is suffering. It is persecution. You don't believe me? Well, listen to Romans 8, 16 and 17. It says there, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. If, listen, indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That teaches very clearly, brothers and sisters, that our future is glorious. Amen. We're going to be in glory forever with our Lord. But now, part of our inheritance is to suffer with him, to be persecuted. So this brings to an end our first section where we see Jesus is saying that we are going to be persecuted by the world because we don't belong to the world anymore and also because of our standing in Christ. And I feel like the Lord wanted me to say at the end of this section or ask you a question. And that is, how do you respond to these truths that are coming forth from this first section? Do you respond to it with humility and acceptance and an acknowledgement that, yes, this is going to happen in my life? Or are you finding it difficult to accept? Are you finding that the barriers are coming up in your heart, that you're becoming hard-hearted, maybe as I'm saying these things? And I just feel like the Spirit would say to you, if you're in that place of not really accepting what this says, can I just... I feel like the Lord wants to say to you that have you been taught the right thing about the gospel? Do you, have you been taught that your life as a believer is just about prosperity and having lots of money and not having any difficulty? Have you got what I would call an over-realized eschatology where you're living now or expecting to live now the way we're going to live in the future in glory? The Lord, brothers and sisters, wants us to be real about this. He wants us to accept this truth. Because if we accept this truth, we will have that foundation. We'll have that chance not to be stumbled by persecution. And we'll have the knowledge to deal with it. So he goes on in the second section. And that's between verses 21 to verse 26. I'm just going to read verse 21 again. It says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. So in this section, verses 21 to 26, Jesus changes his tact. He's told us why the world will generally persecute us, but now he's going to focus specifically on why unbelievers love to persecute Christians. What are the main reasons why people out there in the world love to do that? Why they love to hate people like us who believe in Jesus. So he says there, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. And what he's speaking of there is he's speaking of the... Um, things that they're going to experience in the future as they're persecuted. And if you pop down to chapter 16 again, and I'll read verses 2 
and 3, it tells us what Jesus is thinking when he says, but all these things. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. And so what Jesus is thinking of here, when he says, but all these things they'll do to you, he's thinking of them being pushed out of the synagogues, being rejected by the Jews, and also being martyred. He's speaking of the fact that these guys, most of them, I think if not all of them, were martyred for their faith. And they suffered persecution immensely. But he says that these things will happen for my name's sake, and I'll come back to that in a little while. But he says, because they do not know him who sent me. And this is the first reason why unbelievers love to hate Christians. It's because they don't know God. Now, I'm going to make a bit of an exclusive statement now, which all of us will agree with. But it's becoming more and more politically incorrect for me to say. And maybe in 10 or 20 years' time, if I make this statement in public, I might be put in prison for it. I know that sounds extreme, but it might happen. But the statement is this, that we all believe in this place that if someone doesn't submit to the teaching of Christ, if someone doesn't acknowledge that they are a sinner, if someone doesn't believe that Jesus died for their sins, then they don't know God. They are destined to be judged when they die and go to hell. This is a statement that agrees with the scripture wholeheartedly. It agrees with what it says in Acts 4.12, where it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is, listen, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a statement that agrees with 1 Timothy 2.5, where it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's a statement that agrees with John 14.6, where it says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other name in this place, in this planet, under heaven, by which people are saved and they know God, and that name is Jesus Christ. But also, in making that statement, I'm going to say something else, that those who don't believe in Christ, who don't submit themselves to his teaching, who don't know God, are, listen, God's enemies. They are God's enemies. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because of two verses. It says in Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind, speaking of someone who's unsaved, is enmity against God. Enmity means being at war, being an enemy of God. I also say it because of Ephesians 2.3, where it says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Which means that those who don't know the Lord are by nature under his hot displeasure. So if someone doesn't know Jesus, they are an enemy of God. That is how God views them. Now I have to be careful in saying that, because God, even though he sees unbelievers as enemies, he is willing at any time to put his love upon that person. Hallelujah. He is willing to give them salvation if they would just but believe. And if you're in this place this morning and you don't know God, God would say to you at the moment, you are a child of wrath. You are one of his enemies, but he wants to love you. He wants to pour his grace upon you. If you would just receive the message of the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. This is what he wants. But for people who don't know God, they also see him as their enemy. They may not admit to that, they may not want to acknowledge it, but they certainly live it out by rejecting the gospel or by living a life of sin. What am I trying to get at? Well, if someone doesn't know God, 
if someone is God's enemy, if they come up against a Christian who is growing in Jesus, who is seeing more of Christ in their life, then again, what is that person going to see in you? They're going to see God. They're going to see the one that they see as their enemy. And they're not going to like it. And they're going to hate you. And they're going to love to hate you because of that. I'm sorry that this is heavy stuff, brothers and sisters. But the reality is, is that sometimes in the scriptures, we have to face these facts. We have to work through them. We have to wrestle with them. But I also know that John always gives me a message like this when he's away. <laughs> so I always have to deal with it. <laughs> but anyway. So he goes on in verses 22 to 25, and he gives us a second reason why people love to hate Christians. He says again, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. So it doesn't get any easier, brothers and sisters. There's more heavy things to deal with, I'm afraid. But Jesus is saying in these verses, he's saying that when he was alive, he said things and he did things that meant that a certain group of people realised that they were sinners. And he says that if he didn't say the things that he said, and he didn't do the things that he did, those people would not realise that they were sinners. But because they did realise they were sinners, they hated him and hated his father. What is Jesus getting at? Well, firstly, you have to work out who is this group of people. And I would say that the group of people that he's speaking about is the Jewish religious leaders. Now, the Jewish religious leaders were a group of men in Jerusalem. There were about 70 of them, a bit like the local council in Norwich. Not in a bad sense, but, they, but, but in the sense of how they ruled. They, they were in charge of the religious life of uh, the Jews. And you need to know that these men, over hundreds of years, they'd inherited from the people before them written traditions and oral traditions that were added to the, the, the law of Moses to somehow fill in the gaps that they saw. But they were basically additions to the word of God. And what that did was it meant that people on the streets, average people, couldn't get to know God because of all these traditions that they had to go through. And Jesus rebuked the Jewish religious leaders for doing this. He said that I've given you the keys of heaven, but you shut it up for normal people because you've added all these traditions to the word. Also, these men were very, very confident in their own ability. They were very self-righteous. They didn't think that they needed a saviour. They didn't think that they needed to repent, really. They had utter confidence that they were fulfilling the law, and what they were doing was they were waiting for the Messiah to come, this really huge political figure, and that they would take over the world with him. But what happened? Jesus came, and what did he do? Jesus fulfilled the law before their very eyes. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved other people the way that they should have loved other people. And they were, for the first time, they saw the reality of that. And they were like, man. They were convicted by the spirit of sin. They saw that they had got it wrong. Jesus came on the scene and basically said to these guys, look guys, you think you're all right. You think you don't need a saviour, but I'm telling you, you can't be saved unless it's through me. <laughs> and you cannot fulfil the law. Don't you know that the purpose of the law was for you to see your need for me? And the thing is, the way these men responded was that they said, we don't like that, Jesus. We don't like what you're saying to us. We hate you. And we hate the person that sent you, the Father. So we see here the second reason why unbelievers love to hate the people of God. And that is that proud people, proud religious people, 
don't want to be told that they've done anything wrong. And they don't want to be told that they need to repent. They don't want to be told that they need a saviour. They don't want to be told that they cannot do it. Proud sinners, who particularly, I would say, the religious ones, think that they can save themselves. That all they've got to do is follow a few laws and it will be all right. And they don't have to really surrender in faith to God. And the reason this applies to us is because what did Jesus say for us to do? He said, go forth and preach the gospel to every creature. What does that mean? It means that you need to tell people that Jesus was crucified for sin. You need to tell people that there is a moral law. That there is a law that God has given that they have broken because of their sin. And that they have to acknowledge that. They have to turn from that. And they have to put their faith in Jesus. If there's one way that you're going to get less likes on Facebook, less followers on Twitter, less phone calls from friends, is by telling them that they are sinners. It's by telling them that they need to repent. It's by telling them that they can't save themselves. And because we have a mandate to do that in love, not in a harsh way, but in love, then we have to expect that when we do that, proud religious people are going to hate us for it. And this is the second reason, brothers and sisters, why unbelievers love to hate Christians. Now, when you think of these two reasons, that people love to hate Christians because they don't know God and they're proud and religious, it seems very incoherent. It's unjustifiable. It seems stupid that someone would choose to do that to someone else because of those reasons. But can we really expect anything else from unbelievers? I would say no. Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. You can only have the fear of the Lord when you've submitted to Jesus and been born again. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, what do you have? You certainly don't have wisdom. You have stupidity. You have ultimately a debased mind, which is what Paul spoke about in Romans 1. And I have to say, that's where we are fast approaching to in the UK. Most people are going down the road of pursuing a debased mind. And so that's why we're going to see more of this incoherent, unjustifiable, stupid reasons for people to persecute Christians. It's like this analogy. Imagine you were in a car crash, going along at 40 miles an hour, down the Bluebell Road, which you shouldn't do, by the way, but you have a crash. And you get stuck in the car, you have to be cut out by the fire engines and firemen, and you're unconscious, you have no idea what's going on, you've got two broken legs and a broken pelvis, and you go up to the Norfolk of Norwich and the orthopaedic surgeons save your life, and you wake up the next day and they come round and say, wow, that was a, a really serious accident that you have, and you're really quite lucky to have got through that. And you turn around to them and say, why on earth did you do that? I didn't want your help you stupid man or stupid woman. But that's what this is like. When unbelievers persecute Christians who are trying to help them, trying to give them the message of the gospel, trying to give them the message of salvation, and people turn around and say, we don't want to hear it. We don't like you, Christian, because we don't know God and we don't want to be told that we've done anything wrong. It's foolish. It's stupid. And you see, Jesus knows that the reasons why unbelievers persecute us is, is like this. He then says in verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What's Jesus doing here? He's acknowledging that the reasons why he was persecuted were unjustifiable. They were incoherent. They were foolish. But what does he say? Even though that's the case, there was a reason that it happened. 
and it was to fulfill prophecy. And that word there, they hated me without a cause, is from Psalm 69, verse 4. And so Jesus knew that even though it was stupid, even though it was foolish that he was persecuted, there was a reason for it. And I think that the Spirit wants to say the same to us in here this morning. That when you're persecuted, when you're hated, when you're despised for being a believer, there is a reason that that is taking place. It's not all pointless. It's not all foolish. He alluded to that back in verse um, 21. Remember I said, he said that these things will happen to you for my name's sake. Do you know in this place this morning that the reason why you're being persecuted is for Jesus' name's sake? It's so that Jesus' name can be proclaimed even through the process and the difficulty of your persecution. And that's been the story down the centuries of the church. Whenever there's been a major persecution of the church, what has happened? The gospel's gone further into the world, hallelujah. The name of Jesus has been proclaimed in more places. Satan thought that he could thwart Christianity, but God in his great wisdom and mercy used persecution to proclaim his name. So listen, if you're in this place this morning, you may be being persecuted. You may be going through a time where you think, what on earth is the point of this, Lord? I felt like that this morning when I was trying to get four children ready to come to church. But listen, there's a reason. There's a good reason why those things happen. The Lord is not going to waste your persecution. He's not going to waste your pain. He's not going to waste the difficulty that you go through. There is a reason for it. So we come into our last section in verses 26 and verses 27. And Jesus says there, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now these two verses are what's called a paraclete passage. comes from the word parakletos, which means to come alongside. And in the Upper Room Discourse, or actually from John 14, 15 and 16, there are five of these passages that are focused on the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside, the one that Jesus would send. So in John 14, uh, when Joe and John were speaking, we saw that the Spirit comes alongside us and abides with us forever. We also saw that the Spirit comes alongside us to teach us all things, to help us to grow in the truth. And here, lastly, Jesus ends this section by talking about what the Holy Spirit does in coming alongside believers in their persecution. That's what he's going to focus on. But I just want to make two comments about certain theological doctrinal truths which I think are very important for us to understand. Notice it says there that Jesus says he will send the Spirit from the Father. And what that means is, is that Jesus will send the Spirit from where the Father is in heaven. That teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a heavenly Spirit and he is unlike any Spirit that has been in the world. He then says that this Spirit who he will send from the Father actually proceeds from the Father. Now, if there's ever been a term that causes division in the church, it's that uh, sense of proceeding from. There's been a lot of debate about this over the centuries in the church, about what does that mean, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And there's two areas of debate. One is, does the Spirit just proceed from the Father, or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? And that's been a major dividing line in the church over hundreds of years. It's actually what divides the West Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church believes that the Spirit only proceeds from the Father, and the Western Church believes that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. I'm not going to go into that because it will confuse you probably, but, but that's a major de debate 
area. The other area is this actual, what does it actually mean that the Spirit proceeds from the Father? And there are two ways you can understand this. The first way is what I would call the ontological way, which means that when this is being spoken by Jesus, he's saying that the Spirit proceeds from the same being as the Father. Now, in one sense, that's true, because we are all Trinitarians. We believe, I hope we're all Trinitarians, <laughs> but we believe that God is of one essence, but within that oneness of essence, there is three distinct persons. There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, when you say that the Spirit proceeds from the same being, that's, that, that is correct, but if you take it too far you can fall into the error of something called Unitarianism, where you don't really believe that there's a trinity, you just believe there's one God, and he manifests himself in three ways. He manifested himself as the Father in the Old Testament, as Jesus when he was alive, and the Spirit in the New Testament age, which we would say, I, I would say is heresy. I don't think that's really true. The other way you can understand this is not ontological, but missional that when it says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, that he's coming from the Father with the same mission, and that that mission is to bring the gospel, to bring people into the kingdom of God, to save people, and to prepare the church for the second coming of Jesus. And I personally think that's what Jesus means when he says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And I say that because he says that the Spirit will testify of me. He follows it up with a missional statement. So anyway, that's the theology out of the way. Hope, hope, hopefully it won't get any more confusing now. Uh, but what we see in these last two verses is three things that the Spirit does for believers when they're going through persecution. The first thing is that the Spirit is our helper. It says there, but when the helper comes. Now that word helper is parakletos. It's this idea that the Spirit comes alongside Christians to aid them and to be their assistant. Now, think about this with me, because there are two types of assistant, isn't there? There's an assistant that helps someone who has all knowledge. The, the, a good example of that would be someone who works in a theatre assisting a surgeon. The surgeon has all knowledge of what they're doing, and the person's there to provide them with the tools to do the operation. That's one form of an assistant. The other form of an assistant is someone that helps someone who has no knowledge who has a lack of knowledge. And a good example of that would be someone who is trying to teach someone to learn to drive for the first time. A person comes into the car, they have no idea how to drive, and the driving instructor assists them and aids them to learn to drive. And so the question I want to ask you is, which one are we? Do we have all knowledge, or do we have a lack of knowledge when it comes to our persecution? We certainly have a lack of knowledge. We don't always know what's going to happen. We don't always have an idea about how we're going to get through situations. And so the Spirit, listen, when the Spirit comes to help us, to aid us, to assist us, He is the one that has all knowledge. He is the one that initiates the assistance. He is the one that carries us through the situation of persecution. I think we see this very clearly back in Matthew 10. Remember when Jesus, I said earlier on, was speaking to the disciples about persecution. He says there in verses 19 and 20, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. You see that? When a believer is going through persecution, they're actually told, don't worry about what to do, the Spirit, who is your assistant, who is your aider, he will take the initiative and he will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I think this is further confirmed in Romans 8.26, a very famous verse, where it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Again, you see there an example that the Spirit is the one in assisting us and aiding us who takes 
the initiative. He's the one that takes control in helping us and comforting us. But the second thing you see there is that the Spirit is not only the helper, but he is the Spirit of truth. So the second thing that the Holy Spirit does when we're being persecuted is he brings truth into our lives. Why do we need truth in our lives when we're being persecuted? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because when you're being persecuted, the devil is often there lying to you and accusing you of things that you shouldn't be lied to about and you shouldn't be accused about. Has anyone experienced that before? When you're being persecuted, you have this, 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 this sense of condemnation, this sense of accusation, this sense of not really knowing what's going on, this sense of, man, this is really heavy. I really feel a heavy burden. That is the enemy trying to lie to you, trying to bring you down, trying to make it even worse than it is at that time. And that is when you need the Spirit of God to give you truth from the Word so that you can speak back to the devil and say, no, that is a lie, that is an accusation, it is not right. We see that in Jesus' life, don't we? Remember when he was in the desert and he'd fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil came to tempt him and lied to him and tried to get him to do things that he shouldn't do. What did Jesus do? He spoke the truth back to the enemy. And this is what we need as well. And the Spirit does that when we're being persecuted. I would encourage you, when you're being persecuted, or even in a difficult time, if you feel that sense of burden, that sense of heaviness, that sense of condemnation, that sense of lies and accusation, you need to go back to this book. You need to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, fill my heart with truth so that I can walk through this time and come out victorious over these lies, over these accusations, because I believe that when you were at the cross, you defeated Satan and you made a public spectacle of every demon that's ever going to be in this world. And then the last thing we see that the Spirit does is he brings testimony about Jesus. He brings the testimony of Christ in this world. And we see in verse 27 that the, 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 the vessels that he chooses to use are us. He says there, and you also will bear witness. So when it says that the Spirit will testify, it's this idea of bringing a testament, a bit like what I'm doing right now, of what the truth is. And when it says there that the disciples will bear witness, it's basically the same thing. So Jesus is saying, the Spirit's going to testify of me, and I'm going to use you to do it. And obviously the disciples had a specific calling in that, because they were going to write scripture, they were going to be the leaders of the early church, they were going to be in some ways some of the foundations that the church would build on for the last 2,000 years. But it's also the same for you. Listen, if you're in this place this morning and you're born again, the Spirit wants to use you to testify of Christ, to bear witness of Christ, even in the presence of difficulty, even in the presence of persecution. How does that work? Well, when you keep enduring through your difficulty... When you don't reject Jesus, you still love him, you still want to follow him, you still want to believe in him. When you still want to look for opportunities to share Jesus with people, even in difficult times, what is that? That is the spirit testifying of Christ, both in your life and through your words. This is what he's called us to do. A good analogy to think of when you consider this truth is in 2 Corinthians it says that we are like broken vessels. But as broken vessels, we've been given the light of Christ. So I want you to think about this. If you imagine a lampshade here, and it's, I've turned it on, and there's like a, a lampshade around this light, and you put lots of holes in that lampshade, what are you going to see? You're going to see more of the light. And that's what Jesus is, or that's what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians. He was saying, look, you guys are broken, but because I've given, well, because the Lord has given his light, through that brokenness, Jesus is going to be seen. But what happens 
when a Christian is persecuted and crushed. There's more holes. There's more weaknesses in that earthen vessel. So what does that mean? More light is shed. Jesus is seen more clearly when we're persecuted. Brothers and sisters, I know it's been a heavy message today. And um, there's been some difficult things to say about persecution, about being hated, about the reasons why that happens. But for me, I see this not as a discouragement, but as an encouragement. And the reason is, is because I think that when we are living our Christian lives and there are certain terrible difficulties that come into our life and certain persecutions that we can't explain, and by the power of the Spirit, you keep going, you keep growing, you keep speaking of Christ. That, I think, is in a sense real Christianity. It's one aspect of a very vibrant, real, authentic, fruitful relationship with the Lord. So don't let the devil discourage you this morning. Don't let the enemy lie to you and say, this is a load of rubbish that Adam's speaking. I don't know whether you're going to go into this week and be persecuted severely. But what I do know is that if you are, the Spirit will be there to help you. 